0: Continue our study in the attributes of God this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we do thank you um, over these weeks as we've looked Attributes referring to your person, character, your essence. It's very humbling. You are so mighty, so great, infinite God. We are your finite creatures. Help us to learn more of your abounding grace this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Predestination. All All Christians believe in predestination, because the Bible clearly teaches it. But not all Christians mean the same thing when defining the topic. The most common error among some of our fellow believers about predestination arises out of a misreading of this text. Told as we are that God's predestination is grounded in his foreknowledge. Um, That's misunderstood by many um, to mean that God looked down the corridors of history. He foresaw what you and I would do, and then he tucked that decision into his plan. Um, But that is a gross misunderstanding of foreknowledge, and it is what Arminianism teaches as Um, Conditional election. Arminian commentators maintain that Paul is saying here that God predestined to salvation those whom he foreknew would respond to his offer of grace. You know, he chose me foreseeing that I would choose him, they say. God elected me because he saw that. I would elect to believe, i.e. conditional election. And then they invent these silly sayings. God cast his vote for you. Satan cast his vote against you. Now it's up to you to cast the deciding vote. Now, Biblicism teaches Unconditional election. That is Calvinism. I chose God because he first chose me. So it's a matter of of cause and effect. Which was the cause? Which was the effect? Is it true that God is careful to elect only those whom he foresees will elect themselves? Of course not. Has God sovereignly chosen His people according to His own will and good pleasure? Yes. Now, much of the confusion is the presumption that foreknowledge means that foreknowledge means foreknowledge means foresight, as I pointed out earlier. You know, that God looks down the tunnel of time, he, he sees those who are going to choose him, and based on their choice, he predestines them. But friends, God never, ever investigates the future to gather information. He never looks to learn. Right? He never looks to learn. He's absolutely sovereign. So the foreseeing view Describes history, you know, is some great movie that God watches, but He didn't create. And if that's the case, again, He's not sovereign. And then history's flow would depend upon the will of man and not the plan of God. Now, I want you to notice here in the text, personal pronoun here. The text says, for whom he foreknew, not what he foresaw. For whom he foreknew. Romans 8.29 does not say that God foreknew certain decisions on our part. It does not say that God foresees our faith and on the basis of what we will do or not do, predestinates those who will. It says nothing of the sort. So, in other words, Paul is not describing events or actions taken by men, but rather relationships initiated by God. Relationships initiated by God. Individual relationships, because the, the word know, "no," it's the word gnosko, which means to love or choose to love. To choose to love. It describes a personal, individual relationship to for love, not to foresee. Those whom God previously chose to love with a distinguishing love. Romans 8.29, there's uh, the prefix pro, P-R-O, in front of gnosko. So it's pro-gnosko. Gnosko gnosko means to love or choose to love. and, And pro means beforehand. He chose to love beforehand. That is a personal relationship. He foreknew his people. That's not foresight. Amen? It has to do with intimacy. In Genesis, of course, Adam, the man, literally knew the woman. He knew Eve and she gave birth. An expression of the intimate love relationship of the man and the woman. So when the Bible speaks of God knowing individuals, um, it often means that he's referencing his, his special, unique love, his regard for them, um, that they are the objects um, of his affection. For instance, in Amos, look at it. Amos chapter three verse two, God speaking to Israel, he says, "You only have I known of all the families of the earth?" So the question is, is God is ignorant of all the other families of the earth? or is this a reference to him knowing Israel in a special way they were his chosen people upon whom he set his affection deuteronomy 7 verse 7 the lord did not see or the lord i'm sorry did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the lord what Loved you. Jesus also used the word um, to know um, in the sense of personal, intimate awareness. In Matthew 7, verse 27, he said, "On On that day, on the final day, on the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you evil doers. Now, our our Lord cannot be understood here as saying, I knew nothing about you. I mean, it's obvious that he he knew them all too well. That is, he he knows their evil character and their, their evil works done in his name. So his meaning must be, I never knew you intimately. I never knew you personally, as objects of my favor and love. So why, let me raise the question, why is it so difficult for some Christians to embrace this fact? Refusing to see what is so clear in Scripture. Well, John MacArthur, I think, gives a sound answer. He says, quote, Our fallen nature desperately wants Some responsibility for our salvation. Likewise, our fallen perspective makes God's sovereign choice appear unfair. And that, of course, is the reason that that Arminians are forced to add some qualifying concept to this particular text. They read into it an idea not contained in the language those whom he foresaw would believe. He foreknew. He foreloved those who would believe. So God has divinely decreed, we'll get straight to it, God has divinely decreed whom he will save and those he will pass over. Whether you agree or not, um, that's what the Bible teaches. So, Um, I want us to consider, for the rest of our time this morning, um, the, the divine decrees of God. And we'll get back to this. I want us to consider the divine decrees of God, the fact that God's actions agree with God's determination. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number seven, defines the decrees of God as, and I quote, his eternal purpose according to... The counsel of his own will, whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. W.T. Shedd, I have this for you, I believe, yes. He said, quote, the divine decree is formed in eternity, but executed in time. There are sequences in the execution, but not in the formation of God's eternal purpose. End of quote. That is to say, an event must be made certain before it can be known to be certain. And it's made certain by God. Now, there are two kinds of wills we want to talk about there's the secret decreed will of God. You and I know nothing about. The secret decreed will of God not known to us until it happens. So when someone says, you know, I'm trying to discover um, the will of God, if you're trying to find out the secret will of God, forget it. Good luck. The secret decreed will of God. No one can And no one will ever violate the secret, decreed will of God because that will is indeed immutable as God himself is immutable. He does not change. Now there's also what we know as the revealed will of God or the the moral will of God. His commandment for his creatures, the, the standards by which they are to live. Now that will can be violated, and it is violated every day. The commanded will of God, the revealed will of God. Now, sometimes God's decreed will is contrary to his moral will. Sometimes the secret, decreed will of God is contrary to his revealed moral will. After all, what is the greatest evil act in all of history? It's the murder of God incarnate. Jesus Christ crucified by the hands of sinful, godless men. God in eternity past, we read before the foundation of the earth, he decreed, that his only son would be slain. As sinners in time murdered him and violated the commanded will of God. Even so, Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things, all things, good things, and bad things so God's decree has its origin in God and in God alone. That is to say, his decree comes not by what you know Tom Dick and Harry may or may not do, but it is according to his sovereign decreed will. He has no plan B, in other words. amen. God has one plan, and it will be carried out in time. Look at Proverbs sixteen four. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Psalm 76, verse 10. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. Now, God's eternal decree, again, finds its starting point in the mind of God. No person or event shapes his plan, but all man can do is carry it out. God's secret decreed will. Look at Acts 2, 22. Peter preaches, Pentecost, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So there we see the the predetermined plan of God, and yet we see that men are culpable for their sinful actions. Men are guilty, responsible, liable. Now, to, to talk about an evil, heartbreaking incident as the sovereign hand of God, You know, like these mass shootings that go on. And the fact that there is nothing that God allows that he hasn't predetermined to allow, that is, those things that he has decreed, that is one thing and that is true. Amen? Is there anything that God allows to happen on this planet that he has not decreed to allow to happen in eternity past. Of course not, that's true. But, but to say that, to, to observe these things that go on um, and to, to declare that though it's true and yet at the same time neglect that situation as a manifestation of the utter depravity of man, the darkness of evil, and the wickedness and culpability of man to to say, hey, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do without bringing up these subjects is a biblically unbalanced view. And it will turn you into a hyper-Calvinist. Consider Jesus. Sovereign, Incarnate son of God. Eternal second person of the Godhead. As he stood before Pilate, knowing the decreed will of his father that he must be delivered up. He must be crucified by the hands of godless men. He did not excuse their wickedness. Jesus, John 19 verse 10. Pilate said... Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, these things, this is incomprehensible to our finite minds, amen? But the truth is the truth. So, again... To observe and discuss certain wicked, evil actions of men, you know, i.e., a mass shooting in a school of children, and then passively or callously respond that everything, well, it's the will of God. God is sovereign. Is that true? Yes. But it's biblically unbalanced if you don't point out that this is the result of the depravity of man. This is the result of the darkness of sin. Okay, so, to, to prove my point, Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Lamentations, okay, who's the author of Lamentations? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, remember, was a very unpopular prophet. A detested preacher. Okay, There were no celebrated book tours for this brother. His message, Babylon is going to come in and be used by Yahweh to chasten you all. And you need to submit. So as the covenant people of God, your response would be what? Say what? What did you say, prophet? Submit to pagan, godless, wicked, corrupt people. Yes. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah also said that Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of Yahweh remember this in our studies of Daniel? And indeed, he was the servant of sovereign God who does with men as he, what? Pleases. Remember, you know, 70 years of exile await you. You recall, you remember Jeremiah um, writes out this scroll and King Jehoiakim burns it. And he, Jeremiah is told to do what? Write it out again. <laughs> Declare it again. See, Israel was under the illusion that because God provided them a holy place and a holy temple, that God was obligated to protect the holy land. And then Jer- Jeremiah comes with, with the indictment. You know, he says, um, "Do not trust." In these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8, he said, look, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Okay, and then in 586 B.C., Babylon levels the place. Horrific, horrific actions are taken out on men, women, and children. Once the promises of God come to pass, the city lies in ruins. Jeremiah does not callously say, I told you so. This is the decreed will of God. Did he do that? No. Never did Jeremiah the prophet separate himself from the people. This weeping prophet identified with the people. And in that sense, he, he is very much a Christ-like figure. Okay? So he laments over the situation, and then he writes a poem. Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 um, describe the despair of the prophet. Um, He identifies with the people on verse 1. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. Because of the rod of his wrath. And knowing that this is the hand of God, he also has hope. Okay, jump down to verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His loving kindness has never ceased, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope, hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Okay, and then notice, so so that's faith. Okay, there there we see faith. Faith. In God, of this, the lamenting prophet. And then notice the things, notice, the things that God does not approve are the very things he does to bring grief. This is what I mean by the secret decreed will of God doesn't always mesh with the moral will of God. And notice, the things God does not approve are the things he does to bring grief. We see this in verses 31 to 37. Verse 31, for notice, if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Verse 33, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Verse 36, of these things the Lord does not approve. What things? some of the very things that happened to the Israelites by the chastening hand of God. Are you with me? And yet, verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? God is not, in other words, God is not capricious. He's not fickle. He doesn't shoot from the hip. He's not impulsive. No, he is holy, righteous, just, and gracious. Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? God works out his plan according to his perfect, comprehensive wisdom, all carried out according to the wisdom of God. Again, he's not flippant, he's not fickle. God isn't angry as we are angry, you know, bursts of rage. His anger is holy anger, perfect, holy anger. So when when God does these things, that is, the secret, decreed will of God is carried out and it shows up in ways like this, that is upon the Israelites at this time in history, he does not do these things taking joy in our pain. He does not do these things taking joy in our pain, but he does them according to his greater purpose, whatever that may be. Unknown to us at the time. So sometimes, you know, we read passages like this. We see this throughout redemptive history. And and this truth, we oftentimes recoil from um, not wanting to bring into question God's kindness. Would you agree with that? Perhaps. So as a result, we we recoil. We, we, We don't want to accept the fact that God is holy, He is absolutely sovereign. And his secret decreed will is being carried out day by day. So, um, as a result, we don't want to accept that. And when we refuse to accept that, what we do is we are forced to adopt the heresy of dualism. It's a worldview that says good events come from God and all the bad stuff comes from the devil. Bad things are just random events that God does not have under his absolute control. Is it not much more comforting and biblical to know that nothing comes to me, nothing comes to me that has not first passed through the Lord as decreed by him in the first place. It comes to him, and it comes through him, again, Romans 11, from him, through him, and to him. Back to him are all things for the sake of his glory. Now, I may not understand why. There are things in my life right now I, I have no idea why. And you all do as well, amen? But to know God, the only true God, who has decreed all things, is thereby governed by his own nature. God who has decreed these things is governed by his own nature. That can bring authentic comfort to the souls of God's people in the midst of distress and tragedy. Otherwise, it's dualism. which is a lie. Ecclesiastes 3. You remember our study in Ecclesiastes? Solomon. He tells us that there is an appointed time for which events under heaven? All events. Every event. Every event, a, a time to be born and a time to die as well as everything in between. God does not learn something today that causes him to change his mind for tomorrow. Amen, beloved? He has established a time and a season, Ecclesiastes, for everything. And we read there in verse 11, Ecclesiastes 3, he has made everything beautiful, or appropriate. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So beautiful is modifying everything. Everything beautiful in its time. All according to his planned decree, brought to pass by way of his providence. Everything. Our problem is we're short sighted. My problem is I'm short sighted, unable to see from where we stand the whole picture. It's like the backside of a tapestry with threads going every which way. It looks like a mess. It looks like chaos. Turn it over, it's a thing of beauty. As Reichen points out in his commentary in Ecclesiastes, or of Ecclesiastes, he says, while God has a complete view, all we have is a point of view. So his decrees, in other words, are not random, but are governed Governed by his wisdom, his holiness, his immutability. And last time, which attribute did we study? His what? Goodness. His goodness. Although we may not understand in the midst of trouble how that thing can be good. Okay? Secret decrees of God. Now, back to Romans 8. When Paul says God causes all things to work together for the what? Good. Of those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, called according to his purpose. Those who are predestined. Okay, He he, he causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't mean all things are good, but we oftentimes define good by our own pleasure and comfort. I know I do oh, this is good. This is a good day because the sun's out. (laughs) Our our happiness and our joy, those things are what we define as as good. And they are. But But this is good. This good, defined here in Romans 8, is good in the context of bringing us into conformity to the image of Christ, conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, Romans 8, 29, as Christ is indeed the heart of God's eternal decree, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So God's decree encompasses all things whatsoever comes to pass carried out by way of creation and providence. The unfolding of God's secret decreed will that's carried out and revealed in time. Ephesians 1, verse 11. He is working out all things. He is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. And that includes the salvation of some. That includes the salvation of some. So the fact that he elected some chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth, predestined, as we read here, to, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, means that part of his eternal decree To elect some to salvation means that there are some who are not elect unto salvation. It's what theologians call divine what? Reprobation. God passes over those he does not choose. And they get what they deserve, which is justice. The elect get what they do not deserve. Grace. Every single human being deserves justice. But God who who chose to save some, they receive grace. Look at Romans 9 verse 21. Potter and the clay. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for what? Glory, even us whom he also called. Now, as I said last time, although God does love all men, all mankind in some ways, that's what we call common what? Common grace. God does love all of humanity in some ways, but he does not love all men in the same way. In a redeeming and elective way. That's special grace. That's salvific grace. Where in eternity past, God made a choice to love some salvifically in an electing, saving, redeeming way, or with an electing, redeeming, saving love. Romans 9, verse 10, back up. A few verses. Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older older will serve the younger, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, while it is understandable how God could hate, that is, reject, it is understandable how God could hate, that is, reject, blasphemous, thankless, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless, suppressing his truth in unrighteousness, trampling on his glory. That is sinners, Romans 1. Is that understandable? What's not un- understandable, and that which is amazing, is that he loves in a saving sense the Jacobs of the world. Sinners. Saved by grace. And these, and these whom he called, he also justifies. And these whom he justifies, they're justified. He also glorified. Grace and grace alone. Amen? Amen. Lord, we do thank you for your sovereign grace. The fact we sit here this morning um, deserving hell. You have graced us. You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts transformed. We praise you for that. Help us to always remain balanced, well-balanced, biblically balanced in our theology. According to the scripture, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.